to ask you a million questions to really drill down to the to your specifics, which is probably not appropriate for this room, but we can do that at another time. But here are some of the things that that you can consider for yourself, right? So there is the lack of uh, erotic friction, which comes from having spent too much time together, right? And you're just not feeling it. And you love each other and it's wonderful and you get, finally you get along and you hold hands and you kiss and it's all good, but you just don't feel sexual. And then when you try to be sexual, you make these half-assed attempts, like you're saying, and then it's like, okay, let's just watch Game of Thrones or something like that. Does that sound familiar? Yes. Okay. So that's just a matter of too much familiarity, too much sameness. Right? So that's, that's the easiest fix because you can learn how to make yourself very different, spend time apart, come together for the sexual occasion after having spent some real time apart right? and stuff like that. So that, those are things that can be handled and they can be handled. They're, they're almost mechanical. So that's, that's an easy fix. Happens in most relationships at some point. The other thing that's a little bit more difficult is if you have corresponding trauma patterns that activate each other, right? Where, uh, I'm making one up, but, but she, um, she's never been with a man who didn't want to be sexual with her because she's never been in a long-term relationship, right? Like, I'm making this up, right? So, She's always, guys always naturally were excited to have sex with her. So she never actually learned seduction or something like that. But she never had to be sexy and overt with her thing. So now she's in a long-term relationship and that's just not the way it goes in a long-term relationship. But she takes it personal. So now she's feeling rejected and she's aging and she wants a child. And there's all the shit that starts happening in her head. Yeah. Like I said, like he said, I've done this for a long time, right? So now, of course, what is happening with you is you are now made to feel, A, you're not man enough, right? You're not um, naturally excited. All other men have. What's wrong with you? Maybe your testosterone is low. Uh, You know, it shouldn't be this complicated, then, you know, then it becomes your fault. Now, of course, then now you are going to feel like, why would I want to engage with that? You feel bad. You know, that kicks in your childhood patterns or, you know, patterns of previous rejections. So the more she um, is trying to goad you into being the man, the less you want to be the man and so on and so on and so on. Right. So, so that's the secondary thing that kicks in when you start having sexual things happening. Of course, the more that kicks in, the more you're going to try and make the relationship okay, which means you're spending a lot more time together doing couple things so that you feel like it's worth having the relationship. So you get all lovey-dovey until you hold hands and you kiss and you sit on the sofa together, which, of course, uh, destroys the last bit of sexual uh, polarity that you've had. And so on, and so on, and so on, right? So those are your... uh, things that you have to consider. So the first and foremost thing that you can do 
this is a little bit like all the things that Steve's teaching you here is you investigate, you, you put yourself in a set of circumstances and you investigate what the real issues are by putting yourself in the set of circumstances. So an easy one that you can do is you decide you have a date night, right? And let's just say, I don't know how practical this is, but you spend at least four or five hours apart before the date night. And you don't go to the restaurant together, right? You know, don't get get ready in the bathroom together. Don't get, don't drive to the restaurant talking about the bills and how awful the day, work day was. None of that. You get, you, you do it like you did it when you dated. She gets ready. You get ready. You don't see each other. You meet somewhere. And whatever you do, you do not speak about your daily shit. Right? And you don't touch till you really, really, really want to touch. And only then do you touch. And that takes some discipline, but that will show a whole bunch of stuff, right? Can you engage with each other on a level that's not just two people running a household together? Can you spend time apart without weird shit happening where people feel abandoned? Can you... Um, make touch conscious in a way that you want to touch and you don't just do it to affirm that you're still okay in the relationship. Right? And then with that, the next thing I would probably reinstate is that if you feel like being sexual, you don't actually have sex, that you say that all that's allowed is kissing, maybe, to begin with, kissing and touching, no breast and genitals. For, for a few dates, right? And then see what happens. And you will have to be the one who enforces all those boundaries. So that's a good first working exploration. And then from there, you'll see what... If you can do that, you'll be fine. If you can't do that, you'll need some therapy. So that's a quick and dirty. This is what Steve's talking about with the guitar picking. If you develop bad habits in those sexual positions, in, in the spiritual sexual positions, you're never going to go anywhere. Right? So I used to be a musician, uh, guitar player, right? For a little while, I think you know that, uh, for uh, a very long time in London. And uh, when I first get, got, to, got to London, I had guitar technique that was good, but I couldn't really, really zoom around the fretboard in a really effortless way. I could pull it off, but it always felt like I was pulling off the skin of my teeth. Um, and it, it felt, I actually used to think sometimes, hmm, Maybe I'm just not one of those guys, you know. Maybe I'm. Bear in mind, I was I was really good, but I but I could I didn't wasn't I could tell I wasn't doing what, whatever name your virtuoso guitarist was able to do, and so I thought well, maybe I'm just not one of those guys. And the, the practice and practice it doesn't you know I can get a bit better, but it doesn't seem to really have that effortlessness to it that you can hear. And so um, what it ended up what ended up being a huge factor 
was I had to make an adjustment to my picking hand. This is a little bit specific. I had to make an adjustment to my picking hand, the technique I was using, economy picking, if you want to know. Uh, anyway, the technique I was using forced me to make, to constantly have to make decisions in, in the different ways I would use my pick in the name of efficiency. It was a shortcut, basically. There's a way of... And so I switched to a different style of picking called alternate picking, where if you go down, then next you go up. It doesn't matter if you've got to move. This is a little bit of a guitar playing thing. But it was a, basically a, a totally predictable algorithm. Down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up. And that sometimes meant you had to sort of jump a bit and do some unusual kind of movements occasionally. But what I, what I had to do that occasionally. But it was worth it because... I didn't have to make any more decisions, technically speaking. If, it was, if this is down, the next one's up, and so on, right? And uh, I thought I was being clever when I learned the other way. I thought I was being more efficient. But it ended up not being the case. So I had to relearn it. It took me about a year. And in that year, I still worked as a guitarist, you know, but I was uh, you know, pretty young, 19 or something, so I don't think anyone noticed particularly. And I just tried, didn't play anything fast for a little while. Um, because my technique definitely dropped, uh, moving to the new method. And I just would practice very slow using this new thing, new way of doing it. Practice real slow, play real slow all the time. And then one day, I was teaching uh, somebody, I was giving someone a lesson, and they asked me, you know, we were playing and I was demonstrating something, and I just went, really, and I was like, (laughs) so shocked. My hands just did it. Because as I said earlier, the neuromuscular preparation was adequate. And so the body just went there. The glass ceiling that I thought maybe was a genetic limitation or something like that was removed. And I, was, I thought, what? So I did it again. What? You know? And it was, I was like, wow, you know, hang on. No tension in the arms, you know, really relaxed. The technique had really reached a level that I, was, I thought was impossible for me really, and genuinely, easily, yeah. mine. Not grasping to try and sound like someone who had the technique I didn't have. You know? And so after that, I became very well known, actually, for my technique and was hired quite a lot to do very difficult things at short notice because my hands could do it. So it was absolutely worth the reprogramming. But for about a year, I, I couldn't really do anything impressive whatsoever. And sometimes you come face-to-face to face with these conundrums. Do you continue as you're going, which works, or do you attempt to go, go into what I call a developmental cul-de-sac, where you, come, you pull off the highway for a little while and you drive around in this cul-de-sac, do, uh, learning a lesson you need to learn before you rejoin the highway, and you can go now in a faster lane. Yeah. It's like we are talking about before, you can, have, you can do it two ways, right? You can have it, or you can have a... a Close copy of it. Mm-hmm. That's not the real thing. You know, we discussed this, you know. Yeah, like the picking, or like any of the things we've been talking about, like this, you know, these things. You know, you can choose to go the route where you really get it, and then it's really worth it, and it's great. It's yours, or you can go the route where you have something that looks about right. Well, I mean, yeah, there's, there's naturally there are certain skill elements, but they're they're self-evident, relatively speaking. Um, they're not that uh, difficult to penetrate, so to speak. But the chilling thing is that when um, it's often taught the way that we're saying is this sort of a close copy, you know, it's often taught that way. And the chilling thing about it is that I think it's because a lot of people of those people teaching those things actually 
don't know the difference. They don't know. They, I mean, they're not selling you uh, necessarily a, um, a fake copy as far as they're concerned. They really think mm -hmm. that that's the real thing because they haven't really... I think that could be the case. I don't know who you're to, and it's a good thing you didn't mention it, you know, and all these sorts, because I'm not trying to go after anyone or anything like that, you know, but that's not what I'm trying to do. But it's like a guitar teacher, you know. One of the things that you find a lot with guitar teachers is, how do you, how do you need to be a guitar teacher? You just need to be one page ahead in the guitar book. That's all you need. Uh, or as Billy Connolly, a comedian, used to say, um, he, was, he was learning banjo at the music shop in Glasgow from this guy who was one page ahead of him. And then he took the book home one night, and then he was one page ahead of that guy. So he got the job. You know, he got the job as the banjo teacher. And that's often it, you know, I think, a lot of the time. And who knows who wrote the book? Probably some guitar player who had a pretty good guess at how to play the banjo. And you, know, you know what I'm saying? That both Billy and that guy may be following this whole method that's, that's, that at no point up the line had any basis in anything other than hearsay. And the thing is, you know, it's here. Mm -hmm. And in your body. That's the book that you need. You know, that's the book. And uh, methods that take you away from that reference point are, um, I think it's a poor uh, methodology because it's all in there, actually. That's, that's your book. That's your textbook. And the best you can do, teaching-wise, I think, is, is to point to that. Point to your saying, you know, you're the student, right? Pointing to your experience, leading, setting the fertile ground for inquiry that is your discovery. Because ultimately speaking, it's you, it's your, your body, it's in you, isn't it? You know, you can. So I think uh, that's a larger point about this whole this whole business. But one of the interesting things about Steve, I'm going to talk about you. When we first started uh, working together, the thing that really struck me and that made a, made a huge difference in the way I was able to teach was that he had such massive um, actual in-the-body expertise, right? And that he could essentially teach other, and I've met some of the people that he taught before I came along, like some of his students, and when you look at the quality of his students, you can see that these are guys who, through the body, have metabolized information given to them, and they're now living them, and they're incredible guys, the guys I met. Really good men, you know, with really good skills. And that's, that particular thing is what he's pointing to in this weekend, right? It's like you explore through your own body. And you do this, you know, these kind of like the assignment he gave you last night. That's a standard assignment you've given, right, yeah. to guys. First step, uh, step one. And then the guys come back and they go, well, this happened, this happened. And then he can go, okay, well, now try this or, well, go back and try this again or whatever. So you get to own your experience. So these are some of the forms, if you want, that we've uh, played with. And, but... More important than that, so these are certainly things you could take away. And, but more important than that, behind the tools, uh, the koan part rather than the movement part, if you want, are the lenses that we've looked at. And we've looked at lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of different lenses, uh, ways of looking at embodiment, ways of approaching embodiment. And I hope that well, the reason we do it in movement is so that you get, like I said in the first day, a somatic reference point. Because you have that feeling, you can apply it to other things. You can apply it to sitting in your chair, or you can apply it to typing on your keyboard, or walking your dog, 
or that sort of thing. And you can find the spring that comes from relaxation, that, the, the sort of relaxation that makes action happening. So these are great and fun and cool, but underneath them are the real takeaways, the real tools that you can uh, repurpose to have whatever your preference is. If you take one or two little bits and you can integrate them and you just massage them and you play with them, a lot of this will, you'll forget probably, or you'll, at least you, you may remember it, but you won't necessarily touch base with it very often. But if there is one thing or two things or maybe more that you, know, you got this, the flavor of, in a certain sense, that piqued your interest, that got your curiosity going, and you can take that and integrate it, then that's quite significant. Because we're talking, of, these sorts of things we're talking about, it's sort of ground level change. It's operating system level change that we're talking about, which has lots of applications and implications. And when you have that somatic reference point in the body, you've got to feel for something, then all its implications are available to you. Um, we, could, we could go through something like minimum necessary muscular activation, and I could bore you to death with all the possible that I can think of in an hour, um, applications for that with examples and so on. But really, to have it in the body is the better way. Because then you could use it anytime, anywhere. You know? And you can extrapolate the abstraction from the reference point. You, know? you can use that as the base to say, ah, oh, this is, the, you know, I see that physically, I see it also emotionally, I see it psychologically, I see it interpersonally, I see it in the company, I see it, and so on. You know? So um, those are some things off the top of my head. Yeah. I think the thing that I want to add to that is that you'd be surprised how little, how a little embodiment practice goes a very long way. Right. And Steve talks about this uh, often, where it's the little and often more than you know once a week, an hour sit. Uh, or something like that, right? But a little bit of uh, daily engagement with the body has a really uh, incredible effect that's cumulative. Yeah. And um, you'd be surprised within... We see this when we work with the women in the study groups. You can tell after the two months when they come back together, you can absolutely tell the women who've done it versus the women who've done it sometimes versus the women who haven't bothered and it's, it's stunning to see the results of daily engagement with the body. Just remembering that it's there. You know, it's quite possible to go through several days in a row with that and totally forget that you have anything from the neck down. <laughs> you know? But the key, and this is in the tips, just to give you a bit of a preview, the, the absolute key is interest, cultivating the interest. You sometimes use the example of musical instrument, learning a musical instrument as a child. A lot of people take up musical instruments as a child piano lessons or something like that. And there are different schools of thought as to how you should learn something like the piano. And one of the schools of thought is, okay, the most technically efficient, straightforward, direct path. In other words, you're sitting there doing scales and independent exercises. The theory being that you need to build a solid technical foundation upon which you could play whatever it is you want to play on the piano. But it's just so boring. And the why is missing, you know. And that's a big part of music. You don't just play music because, because that's how it's played. You don't play Mozart because that's how Mozart's played. Mm -hmm. That's very circular. You play it, you know, that's not why he wrote it. He didn't write it because that's what it sounds like. Mm -hmm. 
It's like, no, no, it's because that's what music's about. Um, uh, primarily, in a certain sense, technique is the, ser- is the service of expression in that sense. But anyway, and so a lot of people give up. It's so dry. They lose the context. What's the point in this? Um, and they just say, I'm not very musical or something like that. But, you know, sometimes a more scenic route is the more effective one because you can enjoy it more, you know. There's no ultimate state of, well, let me put it this way. Um, I'm unaware of any ultimate state of embodiment uh, after which everything ceases and it's all done. You know, we're going to keep living and keep going until we die, you know. And so anything we do has to be worth doing somewhat for its own sake, for the enjoyment of it, as well as for the benefits that it accrues. So uh, cultivating the interest or the spark of, the, of interest, that's the real key. And as Michaela says, if you can do that with something that catches your appeal to you, then that's significant. Mm-hmm. Rather than saying, okay, I'm going to do five minutes of that and ten minutes of that, eleven minutes of this and thirty minutes of that, it's not going to happen. Maybe for one day. And then the next day you think, oh, God, no. You know what I mean? So there is sex, right? And of course, the interesting thing about sex is that when sex is just happening, nobody cares about sex, right? Meaning, if you have ample sex, you have very little um, attention on sex. But when it's not, or when it's not satisfactory, or whatever, right? Then it becomes this thing. And for for most people. Sex isn't what they dedicate their life to, except to acquire it, right? Or acquire skills around it. But for most people, there's a time in their life where they might have, you know, like the the exploration in guys. Often you see they have to have a few years where they sow their oats, you know, either uh, early in life when it's appropriate or in their midlife crisis when it's a little bit tougher, right? But, I mean, these are... Stereotypes that I'm saying, but but there's there's something to be said about having a life that's just a good life that includes sex, but isn't where sex isn't the issue, right? But that's highly unlikely in most people, and the reason for that being that modern life isn't conducive to a great sex life. If for no other reason, then there is not enough time. Right. I mean, let's let's take all the other things out of the equation. Um, even in people who have plenty of attraction to each other, they have skills, things are good. The demands of their lives are such that you don't have sex every night or even every week for many people, right? Because there's just too much to do. So there are several uh, layers to dealing with sex in your relationship. You know, one of which is um, regular sexual activity for the, you know, both fun, health, and maintenance of of things, right? And how do you achieve that? And then there's practitioner level engagement. That's essentially like a performance sport in a certain way. What I mean by that is it's a, you're applying yourself to an engagement that's equal to learning a martial art or learning an instrument or uh, dedicating time to an art, right? daily writing or daily painting. So 
the, the, the first layer of inquiry there is, do you want a high-performance sexual practice or do you want just doing the things that need to be done so you have an, an interesting, fulfilling and good sex life? Right? So that's the first layer. Because those are very different things. You do different things and you arrange your life differently for just having a good sex life than you have for dedicated sexual practice for the sake of exploration. Right? And one is kind of a amateur thing and one is a pro thing, so to speak. And what I mean by that, I don't mean that derogatory, it just means it has a different time commitment. Right? And... That's what it it has a, it has a time commitment and a and a learning commitment attached that um, is substantial, right? Like you were saying, what can you take home, right? Well, if you just take one thing home and you add that to your day, let's just say you only do five days a week. That's thirty five minutes a, a week, and so on and so on, right? So. Um, and sex you can't really do in five minutes a day, you know. So it, it is a substantial time commitment. So those are some of the things to consider. And then, of course, there's the small matter of if you want to have sexual practice with your partner, you actually do need a partner to be present <laughs> for, which means you have to coordinate schedules, you know, take things like food cycles, your child... Um, privacy, you know, like all of those things into consideration, which makes it quite a specific set of circumstances. So, so that said, if you want that kind of an engagement where you make time for practice, you'll have to have her, her interest and commitment the way it is with yours, right? Um, and then you have to find, like you've just stated, the why. Right? There has to be, she needs to be motivated beyond, oh, it will feel great. Because if it will feel great would motivate her, you would already be doing it. Right? So that would be the thing. You'd have to find the thing that makes her go, okay, twice a week I'm going to put an evening aside for this. But I think what would be probably a better way to go is that you decide, if that's what you want to do, right? dedicate yourself to sexual practice, that you, for yourself, come up with a plan that includes self-practice of various kinds and then involving her as available. Because then you don't have the excuse of you would like to but she doesn't want to right because then it's a little bit like okay well yeah i'm gonna do my thing now right which is uh, also quite compelling on on the number of levels and right? and you can go well you know i'm gonna do my thing now if you feel like participating come on in right or don't come in right <laughs> depending on how you want to play it yeah but yeah the, she has to have a bigger motivation than hey let's just connect sexually because you do that right that's not that then. so i I'd, I'd find the angle that she enjoys 
So yeah, so th those are some of the considerations. I'd probably go down the route of um, creating a, a practice that's not dependent solely on her, sticking with that and then getting her in whenever she's willing, able and uh, ready to go there. Because of course one of the rather horrible thing about being a woman is that most of the activity that she does Right, and I and many other women, is diametrically opposite of what the body requires to feel horny or aroused or even ready. So when she's on her computer writing her next sales pitch, there's no part of her body that goes, oh, I'd like to have sex. It's just not happening. Mm -hmm. She might have a mental idea that that would be a good idea, but that just feels like way too much work. Mm -hmm. you know, Way too much work. And so that's what you have to consider. Okay, so she get the, the, the upset that you're talking about withstanding or working with is upset that's directed at you. Yeah. It's not the, oh my God, I just broke the uh, no. vase and this was my favorite vase and boo-hoo. Okay. It's not that. It's no, no. you did something yeah. and I'm now yeah. angry because you are not considering me. How often would you say when she's upset, honestly, right? Not, I see her point and stuff like that. But for you, how often when she's upset, do you feel she actually has a good point? And how often do you feel she's triggered? Okay, yeah. okay. But usually it comes from, a, her upset comes from a place of being triggered. Let us just assume, I know she's not doing that and hopefully she will never do it, but just as a thought experiment, let us assume that when she gets upset that you're championing women and she gets jealous, she actually beats you. How often would you welcome that? Okay, so if she would walk in the room and go, bam, right, you did it again, right, you know, can't you stop, you know, whatever. Okay, so that's good. I mean, that's, that's, that's good. Because the being with her upset against your instinct is a version of that, right? You're essentially saying something like, I don't like this. It injures me. I feel misunderstood. You're curbing my purpose, so to speak, my passion, right? But I'll let you do it. And so anytime you turn towards her and you try to be with it, you are essentially the punching bag. Right? She's not beating you, thankfully. But she's, for the most part, unjustified in her reaction to, your, to who you are. Right? So... If she was aware that what she's doing is abusive, she wouldn't do it, I'm assuming, right? And she isn't aware that it's abusive because she's triggered, right? And clearly when she's triggered, she goes into fight, not flight, which would be easier for you because she'd leave the room and lock herself in and pout. Much better pattern. <laughs> 
<laughs> of, uh, of being triggered, but she's a fighter, right? Um, she's not a freezer either. She'll come straight out swinging. So in that, in that dissociation, she isn't aware of what she's doing. And then, of course, what you're experiencing later when, she, when the trigger has passed is she then can verbalize and rationalize her reasons underneath the flare-up. So you might still not agree, but then it's a proper conversation. Like you said, three weeks later, you, you finally get to the end of that conversation, which then calms her down till the next time. So what, what you'll have to understand is that when she gets triggered, the person you know and love is gone, and who is left is the person who was abused. And you've become the abuser. That's the classic relational trauma pattern. So instead of being with it and inviting it, which is deeply inauthentic, right? You going, yes, give that to me. Well, fuck. Why? Right? I got to get out of here. You have to say something like, look, you know, you can do this in therapy or wherever. Look, when you come at me like this, my fight or flight kicks in. And in order to be there and witness your upset, I have to override the part of me that, is in, that preserves sanity and well-being. So for the sake of your outbursts that are based in trauma triggers, I'm putting myself in harm's way. Do you want that? I would hope the answer is no, right? And you have to essentially say something like, I'm willing to be with you and I'm willing for you to work on this, but I can't be witness to these triggered outbursts. And the reason for that is that if she gets the feeling that these, these things are welcome, there's no reason, no reason whatsoever to not work with this. Right? Because she just becomes accustomed to you being able to hang with it, right? And she won't, because she's dissociated on a certain level, she also can't, can't see what she inflicts on you, pain, discomfort, you're hanging in there, you're doing whatever it can, breathing deeply, and you know, all of those things, so you can deal with something that's utterly unreasonable, right? So, for the love of your fiancé, you have to stop her from being able to do that. Right? And if she's studying to become a therapist, she's hopefully aware of such patterns, and you can point towards them, and you can say something like, let's not do that anymore. Right? Because the other options are, you stop being the champion of women. Not a good option. Or over time, you develop a form of PTSD where when the door opens, you're like this. Oh, shit. Like, God. Okay, let me get ready. Right? It's, it's not, it, you can accept her for who she is. That's the loving and wonderful thing to do, right? Because you love her and you're engaged to be married and you're living together and you have a furry child together and all of those things that make your life good. That's, that's your part. You're accepting her by being with her. You can't accept that behavior long-term 
because it will erode the relationship. Because at some point what's going to happen is you're not going to want to have sex anymore. Right? Because why? It, why would you... I mean, unless you are really, you know, kinky, you don't, you don't, uh, you know, you don't engage sexually with someone who injures you. Now, as far as the arousal when she's really emotional, that's not an indication of goodness, because as you probably know, right, it's a threat response. Men in combat have that. I don't know if you know that. Arousal, arousal is not necessarily connected with desiring a woman. Arousal in men is often also connected with threat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Proximity to death will do it because in the body, the, the knowledge of, of potential death produces an immediate sense of need to ejaculate, ideally in a woman, hence so much rape in war and... Fighting and stuff like that. Yeah, in women, uh, threat of loss of life or, or, or threat of towards survival goes to eating carbs, sweets, because in a woman, uh, in order to maintain ovulation, pregnancy, breastfeeding, you have to eat carbs, and carbs, of course, were hard to come by back in the cave days. So you ate anything you could so that you could maintain body fat, and women still do that. Just now you have haagen on every street corner, right? But for men, uh, threat of death, threat of, you know, of, of bodily harm produces the impulse to procreate before you die. And so I'm saying that to say your arousal is not a, necessarily a sign of this being right, it's a sign of your body reacting strongly, right? And yeah, sometimes it's nice when a woman has a lot of energy in her body. I'm, you know, I'm not saying that it doesn't. And from a woman's point of view, I can tell you it's certainly nice when you can emote and the guy doesn't completely shut down. But there's a difference between emoting um, because for the sake of emoting and emoting towards someone who has done something that has been done before by other people. That's very different. So to the best of your ability, for the sake of her well-being, you want to stop those outbursts, right? Um, to the, for many reasons, right? It's unhealthy for you. It's unhealthy for her. It's certainly not a thing that she should do um, to herself in the, in, in the realm of her self-esteem. Because I'm pretty sure when she's done with one of those, she'll probably go, ooh, shit, right? And then she spirals further down, which, of course, brings up the next thing. So the best thing you can do for her is to say, look, I love you. I am here for you. We're living together, but we're not going to do that anymore. So the next time you're doing this, um, I'll raise my hand as a sign that this is the moment, and I'm going to leave the room. And we can talk when you have calmed down, well, all hell will break loose, but you better have a door somewhere that you can lock, right? And the key is to not engage till she has learned how to calm herself down. Right? She has to learn how to handle that by herself. And there's ways to do that, therapy, good women's groups. I don't know what she's doing, but hopefully it's something 
productive, right? Where she works with her body and, and you know, moves her body and those kind of things. But she can't do it with you because you can't be the punching bag for an old trigger, you know. For, for her sake as much as for yours. But, you know, looking for practices as to how to take it better is a little bit like some domestic... Let's flip it to the genders, you know, a woman um, coming to you um, and asking for, uh, like, can you just like, teach me how to take a punch, you know? Like, well, what you do is when, he, when you see it coming, you get ready, and then as soon as he hits, you exhale really hard, <gasps> like that. And it just doesn't damage the internal organs nearly as bad, you know. I, I love feeling his masculine strength, you know. At least I think I do, um, you know. But <laughs> but that's exactly what you're doing. Yeah, but that, let me just yeah. let me just learn how to, to take some punches, you know. Well, you've got to breathe. You've got to breathe him in, you know. If you can breathe him in enough, he'll calm down. It's actually your responsibility to take that masculine strength. You know, you want a vibrant man with all the red blood of a man, or you know, you want the feminine in all its glory and all this sort of thing. You know, you wouldn't want a dead fish, would you? Oh no, no, no. Okay, well, here's how you do it. Get ready. <laughs> if you flip it that way, and a woman came to you and said that, what would you say to her? Yeah. So you just have to look at it that way, right? And that's not to say that you shouldn't. Do- uh, engage in the practices you engaged here for the sake of um, cre- creating capacity for greater love between the two of you. You don't want to create greater capacity to receive abuse. Yeah. Things like movement and meditation can do an awful lot of good. And they can actually unwind traumatic passions. They can. And they can produce positive behavior change. And they can unravel persistent, say, negative emotion, like people who are depressed or have anxiety issues. Move, good, you know, regular movement practice and meditation absolutely can do that. But often it can't. <laughs> it's not enough sometimes. You know? Sometimes the weight is too heavy you know, to bench press it by yourself. You know? And in that case, whether it's, you know, I'm making a broader point here, whether it's someone who's depressed or has anxiety issues or past traumatic things or is locked up in the body or some combination of all of those sorts of stuff, you know, all mashed together, you may need to um, uh, consult uh, specialist uh, avenues to deal with those things. Sometimes it's not a case of trying harder. Sometimes it's a case of getting a different kind of help. And um, Michaela, we'll, t- we'll, we'll talk about that. It's really her special area. How it goes with accumulated trauma, both physical and emotional, is it's there. right? It doesn't just go away. Because you should read The Body Keeps the Score. We'll, we'll include that in the follow-up emails. We'll give you a few suggestions. Um, it doesn't just go away, it just stays there. So um, typically what happens, one of the two things that happen can happen is people do bring the ambient noise level down and then they notice it and now it's above the surface and you can actually deal with it appropriately, which is what's happening with you. The other option is you don't address it the, you, and you have to keep the noise level really high. Right, so that's another. So people do things so they don't have to feel what's there, 
And then furthermore, at some point, though, it becomes so loud that you have to amp up the, the, you know, the, the noise so much or you have to numb. And then you ascend, and that's what a lot of people do, and then they do drugs and alcohol and you know, all other kinds of numbing behaviors. So you have two options. You either num, 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 or, or busy, 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 and never deal with it, and then it's just chronic there, and then you have things like you can no longer move or you know, things happen. Or you do bring the noise down, and you deal with it, and it's unpleasant. But at least you you know the topography of what you're dealing with, right? There's an outline, a contour of what you're dealing with, and then you can attend it. And so one of the most effective ways you can attend it, other than the things you're already doing, which is moving your body, there's a certain kind of washing out of things that happens when you move your body, when you do meditation and movement. And even if it doesn't um, reduce the... Um, I don't know why it appears in my mind's eye like a uh, a mountain, right? Even if it doesn't reduce the mountain, it at least doesn't add more rubble on top of the mountain, right? So the meditation and movement will make sure that you're not accumulating more. And then what you can do with what's left is you find somebody, you're in LA, right? Uh, you'll find somebody who can, there, there's some people in, in L.A. We talked about it yesterday, Greenberg Method uh, and related practitioners. So you'll find somebody who um, actively works on the specific area and helps you release it. And so over time, with somebody working with you, you can actually really release most of it, right? The foothills will always be there because they are part of your makeup, but the extremes are, are you know, taken down further and further and further and further. And so that can, that can definitely be done. Somatic experiencing is another thing that's very good. So if you shoot me an email, I'll send you a whole list of things that you can do that, that would address kind of the mountain range of, you know, old stuff. But it's doable, and I've seen people do it. It, it certainly wouldn't take as much as it takes if you do it by yourself, because what you're essentially doing is you're digging down a mountain with a spoon, right? And if you go to a good practitioner, they have good demolition ex uh, equipment. Yeah.